Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Today, we have Jessica Reynolds. Jessica Reynolds is a certified holistic nutritionist and life coach who has over 10,000 hours of coaching experience in the last five years. Her own journey with overcoming food addiction, mental illness, and a lifelong eating disorder enables her to truly connect with others who struggle with similar issues and to help them heal. On today's episode, we hear Jessica's story, what life is like now and what goes into her daily recovery routine, her struggles, how Jessica works with clients, observations in clients who are successful, bridging the eating disorder and food addiction camps, Jessica's book that's due out in 2022, and how she answers our signature question. Welcome, Jessica. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jessica. We're just going to get started. How has food addiction impacted your life? Can you share kind of your aha moment? Okay. So I guess this is my opportunity to tell my story. I, the first sign that I had an issue with food was when I was four and my mom took me to a child psychologist and um, she took me because I was, she was a teacher and she noticed I was writing certain things backwards and she thought I might have some issues. And it turned out I was just left-handed and all that. But I actually remember going to this child psychologist and I remember him showing me all these different pictures. I remember what he looked like. It's like a pretty clear memory. But what I didn't know until just a couple of years ago when my mom started talking to me about it was that he took her aside after the conversation with me and said, your daughter's completely obsessed with food. And I was four. This is before I started kindergarten. And so I know for sure that I had issues with food way back. And so, you know, a lot of people think that eating disorders, food addiction comes from the media or comes from, you know, from comparison, things like that. I was not exposed to that point. I tend to believe that some people are wired towards addiction and some people are specifically wired towards food addiction. And for me, that is the case. As I got older, I can remember being, you know, six, seven years old. I always volunteered in my house to cook so I could eat while I was cooking. I volunteered to put things away so I could sneak and eat. I volunteered to make the other kids lunches so I could give myself more so I could sneak and eat. Like it was always there. So it's a matter of, you know, when you, when you say, how has it impacted my life? It consumed me. And by the time I was 11, that is when I started binging purging. I actually started eating and throwing up when I was 11. And I thought I invented that. I literally, I had never heard of bulimia. I had never, I didn't really know about eating disorders. I don't know if I'd ever heard that term, but I thought I figured out the world's best way to continue to eat the way that I wanted to eat, you know, eating like crazy and not get really fat. I really thought I invented this amazing thing. And so I was very immersed in that, in the, 
in eating and vomiting. And only one person knew about it, my sister, but it was kept a secret for four years. So it wasn't until I was 15 years old that that came out in my family. And by the time they realized, by the time my sister told them, I was so addicted to that behavior, the binging and purging. It was just, I was just obsessed with it, like just completely, completely eaten up with it. I could not imagine life without that. But that really started around that age is when they started taking me to, at that point, um, I'm 47 years old. So at that point, in my life at 15, 16 years old, there were not a lot of resources for eating disorders. It wasn't talked about. I'd heard of one person with an eating disorder before, and that was Karen Carpenter back then. She had died with anorexia, but nobody talked about that. My parents didn't know what to do. And I, I like to give them a lot of credit because they searched everywhere. They looked, they tried. and But it began this decades and decades long search for help. At first, it was because they wanted me to get help. I didn't want to give up the thing that I was doing. I thought I needed it. I was a, I was truly addicted, not just to the food, but to the purging behavior. And so I went to... I remember the first doctor I went to, she had written a book and her theory on how to get over this binge eating and binge eating purging was just to allow yourself to have all you want of the thing that you're addicted to, and then you'll get sick of it. And you won't want it anymore. Um, she literally had written a book about it. My parents had found her. And then they sent me to a hospital. And this hospital, they didn't really have an eating disorder program, but they helped people with drugs and alcohol and stuff. And I was the only person there. And I'm sitting in this circle of, I'm a teenage girl. I'm sitting with an eating disorder, sitting in a circle of like these grown men and women talking about their drug use and how they, I mean, literally the details of how they did certain drugs. Like I, it, it just... It was overwhelming. I didn't stay long. Finally, they did find an eating disorder hospital for me down in, in Florida. And I stayed there for a while, but I didn't get the full treatment because it was not covered by our insurance. It was like $1,000 a day. So I wound up being, over time, I wound up being in six different eating disorder hospitals, over 30-something therapists got to the point where I just felt like I tried everything. I struggled with anorexia at times. I'm 5'10". At one point, I was like 115. I was very, very thin. There was a point where the doctor brought my mom and dad in and said, you can expect to find her dead any morning. Like just, you're going to walk into her room and find her, her dead. And I remember being super angry because I was over 18. And, you know, I was like, well, it's confidential what I tell them. But when your life's in danger, they can do that. I remember seeing my dad cry and he, he's not a crier. And it is one of those moments that I look back on that like gets to me because it, it really was, my life was, it was really bad. There was, you know, a points where I was just compulsive overeating, but the primary addiction that I struggled with or the primary eating disorder I struggled with was bulimia. It was always binging, purging. And there were times that I got into laxatives really badly too. Sometimes people think bulimia is just about throwing up, but it's really about anything you do to purge your body or try to undo an eating event. And I got to a point where I was taking 77 laxatives a day because I had started taking small amounts and they didn't work anymore. And so I would just compulsively take like boxes and boxes and boxes of laxatives. And it was so bad that I would like, I would eat food and five minutes later, that exact food would leave my body. And so you, you can imagine how messed up my digestive system was for that to be able to happen. Like, how does that even 
work. So I was very sick, very, very, very sick. And it wasn't until I was 41 years old, six years ago, that I actually finally got better. So from age 11, well, really, I mean, I say age 11, because that's when the bulimia started, but really it was before then. But from age 11 to 41, binging and purging on a daily basis at the point where I kind of hit rock bottom, I would say. And I thought I had hit that point many, many, many times. But at the point where I changed, I was 309 pounds, which was my high for my weight. I was on 17 pills a day, but most of them were for psychiatric disorders. But I had physical issues too. I, um, I had bladder disease, interstitial cystitis. I was on two pills for that. I was taking shots for chronic migraine. I was on ton of meds for bipolar disorder. I was on a ton of sleep meds. I mean, it was just over the course of years, I had seen so many different doctors and they always just added more meds, more meds, more meds. And I was just at a point where I was out of control. And, and this is the part that I don't always talk about in podcasts, but I feel led to today. I had gotten to a place that was actually really suicidal. I mean, I, I hit, when we're talking rock bottom, I hit rock bottom. I did not want to be alive. I thought, actually, I, I fell for, and I believe this lie that my family would actually be better off without me because of the pain that I was causing. My very existence had to be more painful than the loss of me would be. And so I was in bad shape. My doctor suggested a riddle, really radical treatment. They sent me for electric shock therapy. And I had 12 sessions of that. And not only did that not help me, it destroyed my mind. I was literally, I couldn't remember what year it was. I didn't drive a car for five years after that. I could not work. I didn't know my way around my own house. I mean, it fried my brain and it didn't give me any peace either. So when I say that I was at this point where I was rock bottom, I mean, I wasn't existing. I wasn't living. I, um, I was diagnosed formally with agoraphobia, which is where you won't leave your house at all. It wasn't social phobia. I had had social anxiety before. I was on meds for anxiety, but this was, I would go months and months and months and months and not even like step outside to feel the sunlight on my face. Like I was inside. So that's where I was. That's the position that I was in. <laughs> so how does food addiction impact my life? It took my life. It literally tried to take my literal life. And so the fact that I'm here today is a miracle beyond miracles. <laughs> Aha moment. Well, I, I saw that, that you had asked that question. And I thought there's a couple, but the main one was I got to, there was a point where I didn't care if I died. I really didn't. I was like, I really had kind of, I hoped that I did. And I was just like, cause I can't stand living. And my husband said to me, he's like, I'm afraid you are going to die. Like, I've never seen you as bad as you are. I was having these episodes where I would like, like I would black out, like tunnel would come. I really couldn't bend over to put my shoes on. I did like, it was just, it was so bad. And he kind of just pushed me to go and get my blood pressure taken because I had avoided a doctor. And I went and again, I, I knew I was sick. I mean, I knew I was really messed up, but I go and they do the blood pressure cuff and I look at the numbers and it beeps. And I look down and it said, it was the highest, <laughs> it was at the highest thing where, you know, the warning thing, it said, at risk for immediate stroke. And all of a sudden it was like, 
it's not like my life flashed before my eyes, but my future flashed before my eyes. I thought, as terrible as my life is now, what if I also had a stroke on top? And I imagined my adult daughter, I imagined her wedding. And I actually, like, this all happened so fast, but it was so clear in my mind. I imagined being in a wheelchair in a dress, but I had a diaper on and my face was misshapen and and messed up from a stroke, disfigured from a stroke. And then I imagined my younger daughter, who's a teenager now, but she was younger then. And I imagined her graduation and my husband was sitting there and my daughter was sitting there. I was just not there because I was dead. All of a sudden I started realizing I don't want to live with a stroke and I don't want to miss out on my future. I really don't. It's like all of a sudden I started to care again. And it was the first time I had cared in years. I had just given up. And in that moment, I thought, okay. And so my husband says to me, you know what? You got to lose some weight. We have to lose some weight. He was in really bad shape too. We were a little codependent in our binging. And he said, you know what? Let's do low carb. We did that back in the 90s and lost a ton of weight. We ate a lot of food and we still lost weight. Let's do that. And so that was the beginning for me. So that aha moment I think that I had was wait a second, I think my life is terrible. It can't be any worse. Yes, it can. And do I really want to die? No, I don't want to miss my kids growing up. I had had just fallen for this huge lie. And I realized like, that's not even true. And that was the moment that I, that things turned around for me. So then was there a point where you realized like this when you got on the low carb, was that when you were like, this is food addiction? Like, how did you have kind of that aha moment? Well, I had all my life, I knew that. I think because having therapy, having going into all these hospitals and things like that, you know, when I went to, you know, it came out that I was binging and purging and the discussion of bulimia came up, my parents started researching it. But when I went to that first hospital specifically for eating disorders, that was an an aha moment because I remember their slogan was, it's not your fault. You're not alone. And I was shocked because there's other people in there, you know, I'm in there and I I have bulimia. And at that point, I, I wasn't, severely underweight and wasn't overweight. It was kind of normal. I was in there and there were people who were 800 pounds. I remember a guy named Lou was 800 pounds. There was, you know, a girl in there that weighed 80 pounds. There was people like me and I'm like, this is not just me. Like, wow, there's other people who are like this. And so that was a huge moment. And I got to tell you, I was hugely relieved. I was so relieved because I just thought like, there is something wrong with me that I can't explain to anyone and there's no one in the world who would understand. And so that was the first glimpse I had into the fact that there is a world of eating disorders and there is a, this world of food addiction that this is a thing. Like, you know, it was the first time I ever actually felt understood because there were other people around me in those group therapy sessions that had the same things. And it really, at that time, helped me understand how similar they are all the eating disorders are, all the different types of food behaviors are, they're, they're not so different. 
Right. And that is a lot of what we deal with the clients that we work with, right? They come with some eating disordered eating behaviors and food addiction to those sugar flour for some of them grains. And so in your own personal recovery, how do you separate like what's on the spectrum? What is, is this eating disorder showing up for me right now? Is this food addiction? And you know, how does that work in your personal recovery? So my answer on this might sound funny, but the answer to that is I don't. I really have gotten to the point and and the longer that I've done this, the longer that I've been sober and the more that I help other people, the more I realize I don't have to. It's almost splitting hairs. There, It was something really compelling to me. There's some people in the, even the keto or the community that I'm part of that just deny there's a such thing as food addiction. And it makes me crazy. It, it literally makes me crazy. So it came up and I, I looked up the word in the dictionary. I pulled it out. I looked up the word addiction in the dictionary. And I was looking up synonyms for addiction. And the two words that stood out to me that have stuck with me since then are fixation and enslavement. And I said, you know what? I was fixated and enslaved by food. If that is not addiction, I don't know what is. And so... While I know that when we talk about eating disorders, you know, so often we talk about anorexia, bulimia, compulsive eating, and binge eating, I find any addictive behavior around food to be disordered. And so I don't put a lot of effort into separating those things. I think it just causes unnecessary, we're taught, we're splitting hairs when we should just be focusing on what the issue is. Like, and I find that I don't need to separate those things. People come to me and they have, I see it as a spectrum, like there's there's mildly disordered behavior to me. (laughs) And so they come to me and wherever they are on the spectrum, the common thing is that they believe lies about themselves, about their behaviors, about what food will do for them. And it doesn't matter if they're a little disordered, a little addicted, or if they are off the charts, the problem is the same. They have a voice of sabotage that points them towards food as the solution to a problem that food can't solve. So I don't, I literally sort of, I don't spend a lot of time figuring out like, how do I label this or this or this? I love that answer so much. I love it because I think we end up doing a lot of the same, you know, and and it doesn't really matter if it's a little bit, like you said, like, the severity matters in that, like how we show up and, and the intervention, the level of intervention we have. But at the end of the day, it's, we're using food as the quote unquote solution. And pretty soon we're using food because it's creating problems that only the food created. And it's this really terrible cycle. And so do we have to label it binge eating disorder or this or that, or the other thing, or really could it just be, Hey, let's meet you where you are and let's have the behavior change that's required to make this different for sure. So the other thing I'll say about that is almost every person I've worked with at some point, their food behavior has morphed over time. Like someone will say, well, you know, I've never been bulimic, but blah, blah, blah. And then they'll talk about, oh yeah, but in high school, I threw up a couple of times. Like it's this, the eating disorder morphs. You know, I talked about having anorexia, bulimia and compulsive overeating and binge eating. It's because it is the same thing. 
And so it can even differ in severity. It can differ in form, but it is the same sabotaging thoughts that lead you to the behaviors and the form can morph, I think. Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes it's two sides of the same coin because it's not really about the behavior. The behavior is just a symptom. It's a belief. Yes, of something else that's going on. So thinking about that, you know, what, what is your life like now? Like what things do you do for your recovery daily? Well, I am a Christian and my spiritual life is the priority for me. Uh, Waking up each day and there was a time in my recovery, I literally would wake up and I would say, God, you have to help me with every bite of food that I put in my mouth today. I can't trust myself in my own power to make the right decision. So one of the things I do is I am very intentional about my sobriety and I don't take it for granted. Even so I'm coming up on six years and about a month and a half, I'll be at six years food sober. I I call it food sober where I don't use food to harm me anymore. And uh, that's again, in a world where that wasn't even a possibility, like in a million years, I didn't think that was a possibility. That feels like a miracle, but being intentional every day and grateful for recovery and remembering who I was. I think one of the things that people don't do sometimes is, or they get, they get to a, a place of grandiosity and, and they say, well, I've been sober for a long time. That is a danger zone. I see that. So it is with, it is getting over my own ability to handle this thing every day to God and being just really intentional about and grateful about the fact that I am in recovery. And the length of time that I'm recovered doesn't mean I'm more recovered. I understand this is a condition that I have and I keep it, I stay in recovery because I follow a certain path. And that doesn't change. The length of time does not change that. And I am cognizant of that every single day of my life. I think that's um, so beautiful and powerful. Did you have more to say there? No, I was going to say my life is amazing. The very thing that tortured me and that made me feel like I should die is the thing now that every single day, all day, every day is used to help other people get free. And I think that is a beautiful, amazing, redemptive thing that has to be said. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's so interesting because I get to sit here and look at you and you are just so beautiful. And I can just tell with what passion you speak with. And it's hard to imagine if I just looked at you right now to know all of the struggles that you went through in your life. And now you've come to this amazing place. But I imagine there's probably still stuff that you do struggle with on, you know, life still happens when we're in recovery. So can you speak a little bit about any of those struggles and, you know, how you've been able to persevere and move through it? I think over time I have, I, I see sobriety, not like a place that you reach, but I see it as something that has layers. I describe it as like a ball. So when you first get sober, you've got this kind of translucent ball and you peel off that first layer. And that first layer is I don't eat certain foods that that I know are harmful to my mind or soul or body. And then what's neat about it is I think what you see when you peel off that first layer of sobriety is inside there's a hot glowing something. 
but you're very attracted to it. You're drawn to it. Like there's a light. And I've come to understand that inside of that light, that is purpose. That is meaning. That is the reason why I was created, right? And so then you're like, I want to get closer to that. And you start to peel back other layers. And so for me, the layers of sobriety, peeling those layers back. So at first, I still struggled with emotional eating. So I wasn't eating foods that harm me, but I would still eat in response to certain triggers. I And, and again, I worked on that. I peeled back that layer. I don't do that now. I peeled back layers that had to do with overeating certain things. I peeled back layers that had to do with just eating to handle things like in the way that I had handled them in the past. So I've seen this journey to where I am today. Six years is this journey of not like, well, I got sober and stayed sober, but this journey of layers. And I think I see it as something that continues. And so as I pick and peel, as I pick at that, because I want every time I peel back a layer, I just feel so much closer to purpose. Like it's hot, it's fiery. I've got my hands dipped in it. There's still some little layers there, but I don't see that as an obstacle. I see that as a, a curiosity, like what's next? Like, what can I peel back next? So I'm very open to understanding what there's left for me. And I think the layers that I'm working on now have a lot to do with self-esteem, how I see myself versus how other people see me, how I see myself versus how God sees me, what my worth is based on, where my self-esteem comes from. I struggle more with some of the body stuff and self-worth and self-esteem versus the actual food stuff. Because I think I'm in a very good place with food. I understand that it is dependent on me continuing to do the things that I've learned to do. But I do feel like in terms of food, I don't use food to harm myself. I don't use food to soothe my emotions. I've learned to sit with them. I've learned to fully feel. I'd rather sit and fully feel pain than to soothe with something that's going to temporarily, you know, stop the pain and then the pain comes back. Plus I have, you know, all kinds of repercussions from using food. You know, I've just, the other thing about that too, one of the biggest learnings in that area, because emotional eating is a big deal, is that, you know, when we use food to kind of push down emotions, those emotions always rise back up every single time. And if we don't actually feel them, that's going to continuously happen. And so that was a huge layer for me to pull back is that emotional eating piece and not using food. But one of the breakthroughs that I had was that I thought that food protected me from fully feeling. And in a way it did, it was a buffer, but it kept me from fully feeling joy too. So it, it numbed those negative emotions for a time but it also kept me from fully feeling happiness and joy and peace and all those things. And when you finally allow yourself to sit with pain, and that is what I do. I mean, I literally, I will sit with pain because I understand that I also get to fully experience joy. So again, I tend to go off a little bit, but I mean, the layers of sobriety, I think is so important for those of those who are on this journey. You understand that this is not one big thing. This is peeling back, peeling back, peeling back. And the closer and closer you get, the closer you get to just feeling like this is the reason why I was created. There's no more barriers, you know? And I'm always like, what's the next layer? 
pick, pick, pick. You know, I pick on purpose because I want to know like what's next, what's next. So, but I do, I, right now I'm picking at those layers of self-esteem and self-worth and where some of those messages come from and forgiving past hurts and all kinds of stuff. So that's sort of what I'm in with my struggles. I am such a visual person. And for you to describe it that way, it just, I feel like I'm having like fireworks go off in my head. The fact that, like you said, like just get in there and pick at it. Like why run from it? Why avoid it? Like the closer we get to that, you know, that hot ball in the middle, that passion, that purpose, the sooner, right. Then we're, we're living that. And so why not just dive in head first and go after it? I just, oh, that just changes. Well, let me give you another visual. Yes. It's that frame. So I've talked about that. You know, I got that, that vision about the layers. And so a client said to me, but Jessica, do you ever like put layers back up? I thought I had this layer peeled back and they were, cause they were struggling with some things that they thought that they had dealt with. And I said, listen, no, once you peel down a layer, it is under your feet. But here's what happens sometimes. I pick at a layer and I'm like, I got it. And I peel that layer back and I think I'm done. And I realized like, if you've ever had a roll of tape and you've picked and you're like, I got it and you peel and you're like, oh, it was just a little string. It wasn't like the whole piece and you have to go back and get the rest of it. I said, that's what happens. You peel back that layer, but you thought it was the whole thing and it was just like a little string. So it's like that roll of tape and you're like, you never go backwards with this stuff. You don't, you do not go back. You, if you've peeled back that layer, you have learned, you have gotten that, you've changed that behavior. It's just sometimes you have to go and pick a little bit more and get the full piece to fully be free of that layer. And so that's sort of a, just a, a tap, you know, to tack on to that because no, I don't think you can go backwards with layers. I don't, I think that it just means you didn't fully get the whole thing. Yeah. I, I especially love what you were saying about the pain. Like you have to lean in and embrace like, life is painful and there are going to be these painful moments and really working with your, you know, your like experiencing that for yourself. But then also it sounds like talking to clients about that. And that's where I really just kind of want to shift into some of those questions that we have for you is, you know, how do you work with your clients? Tell us how you do that. Is is it one-on-one? Is it group coaching? Like, tell us about that because I really want to know more about how you help clients through these things that we've had to walk through as well. I, I think with clients and and for the last five years I've been a coach and and I've done I do one-on-one coaching and I do group coaching and both are effective. I think some of the deeper work is done one-on-one. A lot of times people come in and they do a group and then they want to dig deeper and do one-on-one. But I just think I go there. (laughs) I, I I don't leave anything unturned. I mean I think that it is a gift. I see that the fact that my own worst pain in my life is being used to help someone else, I think my own experiences going through that are much more valuable to me than any training that I have. And I have some training and things like that, but it's kind of irrelevant. So I connect with the person where they are. I let them feel, I let them know that they can talk to me about any behavior they've done. And I like to share sometimes behavior that I've done that's really gross or really upsetting or really, you know, things that you can't talk about. Eating disorders thrive in secrecy. And most people who have an eating disorder have never met another person who fully could understand and not be shocked 
by what they say. And I know for me, having so many different therapists, and I had some good therapists, but they didn't understand because they had not done these things. They were still shocked by some of the things that I said that I did. And so I find that being vulnerable and really sharing and letting them know that for once you are talking to someone who gets it and nothing that you can say will make me shocked. Nothing. There's no, there is no shame in it. The shame comes because it's secretive. And that's the thing. And that's why I would just, I feel like my mission in life is to like rip the lid off of it and shine a bright light on it because we don't have to be ashamed of having an eating disorder. We didn't choose that. You know, it's just like like someone who has some other illness, right? I mean, I consider eating disorders an illness. We did not choose to have an eating disorder. Why should we be ashamed of something that we are afflicted with? And so I think that is so important. I try to just take the shame off of it so that people are free to really open up and be honest. And the people who really will go there, who will just tell the truth and finally let it all out, then they are the ones who get well, ultimately long-term. I have some clients that have been with me almost five years. And it's funny because, yes, yes, sometimes people do actually leave me. It, it's <laughs> But we move from one thing to the next. I actually, uh, over time, became a life coach too, not just an eating disorder coach. It started with that, but then you dig into and you start to understand there's other things in people's lives that need to be addressed and they come up in the course of this thing. So yes, I do group coaching. I do one-on-one coaching. It is open. It is raw. It is vulnerable. And we really start off with, I think it's identifying What are the main lies this person is stuck in? And that is huge. What does this person believe that is keeping them stuck in this behavior? And very often that belief is about their identity. It's about who they think they are. It's about shame. It's about, I know I was one of those that believed there is no cure. There's no way out of this for me. I mean, I was to the point where I was just like, forget it. I, I'm not even going to fight it. That's how I got to be 309 pounds because I'm like, I've been fighting for years. I'm worn out. I just give up. And so I think that when you help people see that they have these repeated patterns of behavior that are based on lies they believe in, help them. What I do is I help people overcome lies with truth. It's like teaching them a new language. When they can start to identify the lies and then speak back with the truth, it shuts down the thought. And when the thought is shut down, the behavior does not happen. And I support them through that. Oh, that sounds so powerful. I love listening to you, Jessica. I just really do. Like you just, uh, you really speak our language. I'm wondering if you have worked with individuals who struggle with volume addiction, you know, it may not this, you know, they're not eating sugar, flour, any of those psychoactive foods, but, you know, they're seeking that full belly feeling. They, you know, there's not really a limit. You know, we always hear sometimes where people say, oh, you know, you can only eat so much meat and Mm -hmm. that's not true. Yeah, it's not true. That's one of the things I think, again, in this community that's caused a little bit of a stir because there's a lot of people out there that will say, well, if you just take away the carbs, then that's all that you need. I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, I personally struggled with this. I would compulsively overeat meat 
I mean, I've done many stints of carnivore and, you know, there are people that are like, well, just take away the carbohydrates if your eating disorder is fixed. I'm like, no, I can binge eat. I can remember back in the 90s doing Atkins. I could eat a whole roast. I mean, we would go to Golden Corral and eat the whole awesome pot roast. It wasn't about carbs. It was volume. And recently there was a client who would, she she actually struggled with anorexia, but she struggled. I still consider it binge eating disorder. You know, in the community, the eating disorder community says you have to binge eat to be binge eating has to be thousands of calories. I totally disagree. You call it volume. I, I still just call it binge eating. It's the, it's that compulsion to eat and eat and eat until you have pain. And so this particular client, she would eat like 12 cucumbers in five minutes flat, right? Like she, it's a very low calorie food and she wasn't a purger. And so for her, you know, she was getting that same sort of need. I still see that as I need, I desperately need to push something down. And I know that for my own self, that was the case. And the work that I have done to heal, I realized that there were some emotion, some memory, something that I'm so desperate not to feel that the only way I can make sure that that doesn't happen is to push, 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 push until the only thing I can feel is just fullness and pain and sick. And so I think, you know, and again, for me with bulimia, then the purge was a release. It was like I pushed down the bad feelings and then I released the bad feelings. But a lot of people don't do the purge along with it. But it is this desperate need to, this feeling I have is so strong and I can't bear to feel it. And so I have to push it down. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes it's loneliness. Sometimes, you know, it's fear. But whatever it is just feels so overwhelming that the only thing that makes it feel better is this distraction of just filling up to the point of I'm filling myself with this instead. Of course, the problem with that, like I said, is that that's temporary, especially when you purge. When you purge, it goes away. And then guess what happens? The fear comes back. The anxiety comes back. And then you have to do it again. And so it just creates this issue. But I still do consider that binge eating because it is. it, it doesn't matter to me that it's not high calorie. It's, it's the same eating behavior and it's for the same reason. Yeah, I I think that's I think you're on to something there. You know, we've we've talked to lots of people. It's it's one of our favorite questions to ask because it's not really something that gets talked about, right? The eating disorder world is very clear about this is binge eating disorder, right? And food addiction world is very clear about this is food addiction, you know, as a substance, you know, and then there are behaviors that go along with it, but then the volume because it can it doesn't have to be about the substance and maybe it's a little more behavioral, but it still includes that food, that full feeling. It's there are so many things that don't check the boxes in either one of those worlds, food addiction or eating disorder, which is why I reject them. So I think like emotional eating, compulsive eating, those kind of things are disordered eating, but they don't fit anybody's boxes. None of those people who desperately need our help go to their doctor, their psychiatrist, and that person says, Oh, you have an eating disorder. And but they do. <laughs> And they need help with that. So I think, you know, there are just tons of behaviors that don't check any of those psychological boxes at all. And they are still disordered eating. They are still addictive behaviors when it comes to using food as the substance. Exactly. And this is where I go, I go back to what you said before. And, and, and Clarissa and I definitely do this too. We just have to meet our clients where they are. So even though it doesn't check those boxes, right? So we're not, I am a dual licensed mental health and addiction professional in the state that I live, right? So, but I'm not getting referrals from the local hospital right. for these behaviors 
people have to just be willing to, you know, clients themselves have to be willing to like, well, not even willing. They just have to apparently say it to the right people because if they're saying it to their doctor or they're saying it to their eating disorder therapist or an eating disorder specialist, they're like, well, that's not severe enough. So it doesn't meet those criteria. There's nothing I can do or go moderate or something along those lines. Right. <laughs> yes, I know. That's I the biggest M-word. problem, right? <laughs> yeah. People who are supposed to help you with the eating disorders, that was the biggest problem that the answer was always, you know, you're well when you can eat all things in moderation. And then I always failed. And then you think, I, it's just me. I'm a failure. This should be working. This is what they do. This is what they're telling me. And of course, the answer is sobriety. And, you know, it was a long journey to get to that as an answer, but it is, it is the answer. It is, it is for sure. So what is something that you believe maybe early on, so five, six years ago, you get started in all of this working with clients. What's something you believed early on that maybe you've had to change? You know, maybe you had to become more flexible with now that you've worked one-on-one with clients and in groups and you realize, yeah, that just, it just doesn't work the way I thought it would work in my head or the way it looks on paper in real life with real people. I had to change this. Oh, I think a couple of things. One, one of the things that I've really, really come to understand is they're all addictive food behaviors, eating disorders have the same underlying elements. And I think, yes, they're all treated differently, but they're not that different. So I think I've simplified my approach when it comes to things. Like it's not... Yes, I really do connect with people who have bulimia because there are certain things or certain behaviors or certain thoughts that go through your head that other people don't have. And so I specifically have conversations with people about, here are some lies about bulimia. And other people are like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that that way. So, so there are specific things, but in general, it's the same problem. And so I think I pull back and I'm less concerned about what it's called or what that specific behavior is it's more about why and what I believe. And so that's interesting. And then also, you know, again, in in the keto carnivore nutrition community, I think one of the things I've realized is food needs to look very different for different types of people. And there are plenty of people out there that will say every single person who has an eating disorder should eat exactly like this. And that's not true. And so one of the things I think that's super important is you have to bring real nutrition into the conversation. I don't think that you can heal. I don't think that you can think clearly enough to work through your disordered issues if you are not at least eating an anti-inflammatory diet. One of the reasons I could never get well, even though I had some really good therapist and I had there was some good stuff out there, is because my brain was not working right. But Within that, I think there's a lot of wiggle room for different things. And there are plenty of people out there that are just like, eat really high fat, eat moderate protein, eliminate your carbs, you're, you're good to go. And if you have an eating disorder, this is the only way. And I think I have found I need to be very flexible with nutrition based on how different people respond to different things. And I think that's not that common. I think most people are kind of locked into one thing. And I just, we're all too bio-individual. And that's something I've, I've really had to work with. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially because, you know, coming from that more restrictive diet culture, eating disorder world, how do you get somebody to trust their body again? And right. that these foods 
are okay for them when probably in their mind, like that alone, I think, mm-hmm. remember that journey from personally. Eating, yes, that, that I was, didn't eat fat for 18 years. Yes. Not, I, not I mean, I one. I remember going whole years and like every day. I mean, if I had 20 grams of fat in a day, that was, I was really upset. I mean, everything. I was also a vegetarian 14 years, which was some of the really rough years. I'm like, no wonder. Now, the more I know about nutrition, the more I see how that played into some of my issues, um, some of the things I consumed. And, but yeah, I mean, the marriage of proper nutrition with, behavioral therapy with eating disorders is really important. I don't think that's out there much. I don't see that a lot. I mean, even people that have some idea about eating disorders, I know none none of the people I ever worked with, you know, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, none of them ever had a good understanding of nutrition. And then people that I worked with, even in eating disorder hospitals, from what I recall in most of them, they made our food very low fat, extremely bland, no salt, no flavor, no fat, no nothing. Thinking, I guess the thinking is if it's just really, really bland, then it's less exciting. But again, there's there's not this understanding of how much proper nutrition affects our ability to deal with, handle, you know, the sabotaging thoughts we have about food and, and really explore our beliefs and things like that. Yeah, I, I don't think you can separate the two. I think you have to have both. I think you have to have nutrition and you have to have behavioral therapy together. Yeah, I think that that's so important. And I think also I'm really curious because I know you work with both the eating disorder and food addiction. And you mentioned this is something you struggle with yourself. And I know that both Molly and I have clients and it's always about the weight, right? Mm-hmm. And then so once, you know, even we get to the point where, okay, we're on this food addiction recovery journey rather than focusing on the weight, have what that body image piece, mm-hmm. right? What well, really is, it's how you see yourself. It's not even, it's not even the weight, to be honest. I, I, you know, I call the eating disorder, I call it Ed, short for eating disorder. And I say the scale is Ed's playground. I mean, he can convince you to do all kinds of things based on a number that can fluctuate for a million different reasons. So I really steer people away from, I know this is going to sound, I don't know what you guys do, but like I steer people away from tracking. I lost 146 pounds on a ketogenic diet. I'd never tracked one single macro. It was part of my freedom. Re, I think it is extremely unnatural to walk around logging every single bite of food you eat. I think that never happens in nature. I don't think it's normal or natural for people to eat exactly the same amount of food every day of their life. I think, you know, I am not to, my experience with like Overeaters Anonymous, which is on the right track in terms of sobriety. But to me, that still felt like I was enslaved with food because I, you're saying, I'm going to eat this amount of food today. I'm going to measure it out. It's going to be at two o'clock. I'm going to eat this, this, this. I'm not going to vary from it. I I felt like I was in chains still. I was still obsessed with food all the time and weighing and measuring all the stuff. How do I know how hungry I'm going to be at two o'clock? What if I'm not hungry? What if I'm hungrier than that? I think establishing, reestablishing, you know, leptin and ghrelin, getting getting your hormones working again so that you know when you're actually hungry, you know when you're actually full. Those are the things that are critical. So I really steer people as far away from numbers as I can. If I can get them to 
ditch their scale forever, even better. And I do have clients that have ditched their scales forever. And I do think getting rid of numbers as much as possible really does help with that. In terms of how we see ourselves, I think that's tough. I mean, I still have to prove to myself sometimes that I don't still weigh 309 pounds. I wake up and there are days where I'm like, I feel fat today. And then I say to myself, because again, I think it's really important to explore our thoughts. I feel fat, but I'm not. And so that's the kind of thing you do. And and the thing I'll have someone do is I'll say, go and look in the mirror. I'm like, go and get out your old pants. I kept my biggest pair of pants, you know, for that reason. I'm like, okay, no, I, I used to be fat and I can stand in one leg. We have to do things when we have a thought like, I feel fat. What is the evidence that in fact you are not? And so I know I work with people on, I know I realized sometimes I have people keep a log of how often they say negative things about their body because I did that myself. And I realized, oh my gosh, all day, every day, I think and say negative things about my body. Like I would say things like, oh, I hate my thighs because there's some loose skin there. It got really stretched out. There's some loose skin. I hate my thighs. And I would realize that I'm like, oh my gosh, I said that 13 times today. And so when you actually have people keep track, I'm like, I just did my phone. I'm like, put it in. I hate my, and I, every time I thought it or said it, I put it in. I'm like, no wonder I'm stuck on this because I'm saying it to myself all day. And so I really, I think raising people's awareness around the things that they actually think and say to themselves all day. And then I have them counter it. And so I'll stand in the mirror and I'll say, you know what? I am so grateful that these legs held me up when I was 309. These legs saw me through this. They saw me through this. And gratitude really overcomes stinking thinking every single time. So first, it's raising awareness of what are those negative things that I say about myself. No wonder I believe it because I say it to myself all day and sort of raising awareness of it and then countering it. It's a lie. The thing we believe, the thing that we're saying is a lie. And how do I counter that? What's the truth? And what's evidence, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that you are a really great person to answer this question. Uh (laughs) Having walked in both worlds or actually seeing it as one world, as you kind of said earlier, you know, what do you think we can do as professionals in this space as well? You know, what do you think we can do to start to bridge that gap between the eating disorder and food addiction camps? Like how can we move forward in a way that we, I don't know, are not dismissed, but are meeting people where they, where they are at and getting needs met for clients. What can we do? Do you think? I think it's a tough spot because I think I have more freedom as a coach than people have sometimes when they are, you know, certified in, I mean, I I have certifications, but when people are bound to certain rules because of where they work, I know dietitians, my friend, Michelle Hearn, you know, she, (laughs) she's awesome. I don't know if y'all have ever talked to her, but she wrote a book called The Dietitian's Dilemma. And she left that job. I mean, she had to make this decision between like, do I give the advice I know is real? She struggled with anorexia. Do I give this advice that I know is true or I'm going to be suspended or, or fired because I'm telling people to do low carb? So I think, I think part of the problem is that there's some logistical issues about what you can and can't say depending on what your role is. As a coach, I love it because I can say anything I want to. And I think one of the best things we can do is do every single podcast that we can. (laughs) I know for me, I 
I think there's so much shame in food behaviors that people don't talk about them. You know, the person who's emotionally eating, they don't go to the doctor and tell the doctor they're struggling with emotional eating, but they need help. There are people, because it's so hidden, I think that's really the biggest issue. So in terms of bridging the gap, I think the one thing that I do the most is I don't really try to separate these things. When I speak about it, I speak about it as the same problem. And so very, very often when I do that and I share my story and I and I talk about it and I post about it, people who don't really realize they have a problem suddenly do. Because again, their doctor isn't telling them. The eating disorder community is not saying they have a problem. In fact, the world says it's totally fine to use food to soothe. Go ahead. That's a good idea. And in reality, for people who struggle in this way, it is detrimental to them. It creates a shame spiral and it's just so much deeper. So, I mean, I don't know the answer to reaching the broader eating disorder community. And I think some of that is like logistical stuff with what you're allowed to say in certain roles. But I think the more that we can say, it's the same. And, and I do, you know, I, <laughs> I like to keep peace. I like to be an agent of peace. But when someone says there is no such thing as food addiction, I'm going to post about that. And I do that and, and I use logic and I use my experience and I use those things. And, and I think that when we see an opportunity to speak intelligently about that, we should do it. And again, just taking the shame off of it and putting it out there and letting people know. But I just see opportunities all the time. Like all the time, especially on social media, to talk about that it isn't normal to drown your sorrows in food. It isn't. And it is a problem. And it does create issues in your life. And it does create shame. And then and then it does create a body that is sick and unhealthy. And that and then that creates other problems, you know? And and I just the more that we can talk about it, I think the better. And and the more that I can blur the lines, I do. Because I just think the lines are very, they're super blurry. I don't think there's a need to be like, this is this and this is this. I'm like, it's all the same kind of mess. <laughs> and the solution is the same, you know? Yeah, I think both Molly and I, you know, we live in the gray, right? Yeah. And it's, yes. it's, it's a great place to play. And I don't always know if it's beneficial for people to be labeled as something, right? You are not your disorder. Ooh. You are Ooh. not your disease, right? And then exactly the problem being, you know, you get stuck put in that eating disorder category. This is the treatment modality for you. Anything else is none of your business. And right. that can be so detrimental. It really is. And it and it keeps you stuck. I mean, I was I was that person, right? You're bulimic. And so therefore this is the treatment and how come you're not well yet? You're a failure. You, mm -hmm. it, once again, you couldn't moderate, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm someone who was in that, you know? So you have a book coming out and we would love to hear a little bit more about it. When can we expect it? What's it going to be about? Can you tell us more? I can tell you a little bit. I've had some things happen in my life recently that have delayed it a little bit. My The plan was to be done in January. And I still am going to say next year sometime, but I will tell you the name of the book. It's called Silencing Ed, 
Overcoming the Voice of Sabotage to Break Free from Disordered Eating Forever. And it's basically a little bit about my story, but it's also, it's the process that I went through, the process that I take people through these steps to overcoming that sabotaging voice, to overcoming the lies and um, encountering it with truth. And then I have uh, clients that I've worked with over the years that tell their stories in it too. So it's something I feel called to do. I didn't want to write a book. I almost feel like it's a mandate on me. And many people have asked for that over the years. So it's something that I'm working on, but Silencing Ed is, is the name of it. And sometime next year is what I'm looking at at this point. Well, I'm excited because this episode will air in January. So by the time people hear it, it will be this year that they get yeah. to Ooh, look good. for it. Okay, 2022 then, I'll just say 2022. that. Yes, absolutely. So what's next for you and where can our listeners find you? So I am ever expanding and it isn't on purpose. It just happens, right? As I grow and change, then everything around me does too. And I always, whatever's going on with me, whatever I learn, whatever wisdom that I grow in through what I'm going through, I then use it and it becomes like a ministry or becomes uh, something that I do with other people. And so my coaching has grown. I mentioned that I do life coaching in addition to that. And I I help people with all kinds of things. Like I, I help a lot of people get debt-free because that's a process that I went through. You start to understand that like once you tackle, you start tackling sabotaging behaviors and things that get in the way of your purpose, you realize it isn't just food. There's other things that you sabotage on. And so I have clients that I'm helping with their alcohol addiction. I have clients that I'm helping get debt-free. And so for me, I've really expanded in that way. What's coming, I think, in 2022, and I haven't told a soul this, but it's on my heart. I really want to do something that's... I want to do openly faith-based coaching. It runs through everything I do. And, and it's not necessarily in every conversation, but it's who I am. So I will be in 2022 really launching something that's specifically for people who want faith-based coaching. That will be something that I offer. I still do, will do my ketogenic lifestyle coaching through ketogeniclifestylecoaching.com. On social media, I'm Coach Jessica, Coach J-E-S-S-Y-C-A. I've done a ton of podcasts. I am so incredibly grateful for that. All of them are different. They've gone down all kinds of different roads every single time. If you Google me, you can listen to some of those things. If you want to hear more, there's somewhere I specifically talk all about the electric shock therapy. It just turned out that way. Like an hour of talking about there's somewhere I really focused on mental health. And how do I, I don't take any medications at all for mental health. And, you know, I used to be on all these things. They're like, you're, you're diagnosed bipolar. You don't take meds for that. Correct. That is correct. So yeah. So coach Jessica with Jessica with a Y and they can email me at coach Jessica at gmail.com. And again, find me anywhere on, on social media or Google. And I am always glad to hear from people. I try to answer as many people as I can questions. If you feel specifically drawn to ask me about something specific. Again, I don't always feel led to tell every single detail of my story, but I think today I felt led to talk about the mental health stuff. So if there's somebody that's just really struggling with that, or even like I said, the electric shock therapy, and you just want to ask about that, send me a message. I'm very, very open and always glad to to talk to anybody. But yeah. 
that's it, I think. Did I answer everything? <laughs> you did. That was all. Yeah. And I love the idea of doing kind of this faith-based counseling as well, because it's on my heart. When like, we work, yeah. When we work with clients, you know, we address the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And so yeah. many people don't know, like, what is spirituality? How yeah. do I tap into it? How do I access it? And so with your background and knowledge in addiction recovery, I think that that is, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a perfect fit for you. Well, I'm excited about it. Again, I feel like it's a, it's a calling and uh, there are some things that I'm like, Oh, I'd like to do that. And then some things feel like this is a mandate. This is something I'm supposed to do. And that's one of the things that's coming. Good. We have a signature question and okay. It is, what is something you would tell your younger self about food addiction or food addiction recovery? It's interesting because you touched on it, something you said just a few minutes ago, and this is what it is. Your sickness is not your identity. Part of the reason that I struggled for so long is because I believed that my bulimia, my eating disorder was who I was. And if it's who you are, you can't change that. You are who you are. Your sickness is not your identity. It's something that you're afflicted with. It's a series of behaviors and beliefs. I can change behaviors. I can change beliefs. I can treat an illness. My identity was my sickness. And that kept me ill for so long. When I started to understand this isn't who I am. This is a problem that I have. This is something I'm afflicted with. I could separate those two things and start to heal. And so if I had known that, I think when I was younger, it would have made a world of difference. If I could go back and if I could say to anybody out there who's sick with anything, it's struggling with any kind of addiction, struggling with anything at all, you're afflicted with something. You have a problem, but you are not a problem. You have a problem. Love that. Beautiful answer. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for answering was, the, the, the direct message <laughs> in your in your Instagram's testament, folks. Just reach out to Jessica. She, <laughs> she does respond. She is one of those accounts that will respond. And Thank you so much for being here today. I think that our listeners will definitely benefit from hearing your story, from hearing what you have to say. And I just appreciate you being willing to share all of that with us. I appreciate the opportunity to put the word out there. And just the fact that you guys are doing this is so important, even more than you realize. The trickle effect of putting stories out there and giving people hope is bigger than you have. You just have no idea. So I appreciate the the platform. Well, I feel lifted up. This has been great. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.